0: Father, let, us, let our hearts this morning be the holy dwelling, the very throne of the Holy Spirit this morning as we sing these great psalms and hymns. O oh Lord, bless them, bless us in the singing of them, and bless us in the hearing of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. Anyone have any ideas? No requests? Romans chapter 8. Um, I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. And I intend not to come close to doing them justice this morning with my remarks. But I will give it a good go. And so we read Romans eighteen eleven. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You will put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. O Father, we pray that you would unlock for us this morning the secrets of this, your holy word, by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit and your chosen servant, to proclaim these words this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have this wonderful proclamation promises of eternal life, guarantees of eternal life by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. But there are some conditional clauses in here that we have to look at this morning. So we'll do that. But we'll begin with verse 12 in the very beginning of verse 13. Where the apostle writes, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Debtor is someone who owes something, right? Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, in other words, not to ourselves, not to this world system. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So there are a number of things that I'll bring to your attention this morning from these verses, the first of which is that the apostle refers to us in verse 12 as debtors. Therefore, he writes, we are debtors. In other words, based on what has been said in the previous verse, we owe somebody something. Paul said, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, you are debtors. You're a debtor to Christ because he bought your eternal life for you. So there's something that we need continually to give to Christ. We're debtors to Christ for giving us life, for freeing our mortal bodies from their mortality. We will be raised from the dead. Somebody say amen. (laughs) we will be raised from the dead. We've been freely justified before God by faith in Christ. We've labored over that enough in this series. There was no effort on our part to produce so magnificent, so wonderful, so practical, and so indestructible an outcome as that which Christ produced in us without our help. It's magnificent, friends, because it's heavenly. It's wonderful because it's eternal. It's practical because it's already starting in the here and now. And it's indestructible because it comes with every divine protection and the promise of God that none shall grasp you out of his hand. It comes with divine protection. And God has promised not to... Oh, There's nothing in heaven or earth that could reverse your salvation, your justification, except for God, but he's promised not to do it. God has promised not to do it. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. Friends, if you're here, if you're in Christ, you're here to stay. And no power in heaven and earth can change that. Though the devil will trick you from time to time into thinking it's been changed. So the death of the Son of God upon the cross is sufficient for your salvation. That is the gospel. There'll be no other standard to be reached than that through faith we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that his death became the payment for our sins. There's no other standard. He paid for our sins and so long, along with the unspeakable joy of salvation that every child of God knows, there is this sense of debt to Christ that comes with the joy and I think if you're rightly situated in your faith before God knowing what he sacrificed for you there ought to be this great unspeakable joy right or as Peter called the joy unspeakable but along with that joy there ought to be this sense that indeed I owe something to him it's the only it's the thing honorable men do this abiding sense of owing something or giving something back because you've received so much. And though we know that our personal righteousness could never become payment for our sins, there is yet this inner drive to rid ourselves of any vestige of sin that remains. We ought to be on a course. It ought to be the, the uh, pledge of our lives To become more and more holy in our walk with God and to put away sin and sinful desires. Our involvement in our own sanctification, friends, is the debt paid for the gift of eternal life that was given freely. Now he asks us to get involved in our own sanctification. And so the apostle calls the brethren to see that we are debtors. Now, Friends, even an unrighteous man or a sinner at times feels compelled to repay a service or a kind deed done to him. Isn't that right? Someone does you a good deed, you feel compelled to pay something back. Men of honor have since the beginning of civilization pledged themselves in service to a fellow man who saved their lives oftentimes at great risk to themselves. And so there's this human sense of indebtedness due to favors, especially unsolicited favors of other men. Men who did things and asked nothing in return. The man of God is no different in that regard. Christ saved us. It cost him dearly to do so. There's no quid pro quo. You know what I mean by that? you got to love Latin, don't you? Quid pro quo is payment for service or something. If you want to know the literal um, translation of quid pro quo, asked Dr. Roach after the service. There's no quid pro quo with regard to favors received, therefore favors owed. It's not a quid pro quo. But there is this sense of honor. There is this sense of honor. A man gave everything for my life. I must owe something back since I'm to continue in my life. It's that sense that's multiplied infinitely in the heart of anyone who's come to truly understand the design, the divine sacrifice on his behalf. And so truly, we are debtors and we should see ourselves as debtors. And the apostle reminds us that we do owe something back. And it becomes important for us, it becomes incumbent upon the believer to recognize in the moments of our day to day lives to whom that debt is owed. The Christian. In his day-to-day walk with God, I would suggest, I know it's true with me. I know it's true of many of you. we've talked about it. but the concept of serving Christ should come to you many times a day in all the desires, the thoughts, the decisions, the choices you're, of making choices of things to do and things not to do. Christ always ought to be the metric by which you consider whether or not you're honoring Him. Shouldn't that be the case? Isn't that the case? So we ought to be thinking about how we're serving Christ, even in the minute details of our lives. And we owe no other man what we owe to Jesus Christ. We don't owe a debt to ourselves, certainly not for our personal efforts toward holiness, which were as misdirected as they were insufficient, They're owed to Christ and Christ alone. And so what's the conclusion of Paul here? It is this, friends. If Christ saw fit to die to make us holy, we owe him our every effort to continue on the path toward progressive holiness in our lives. He died and declared us holy. The least we can do is show that we are concerned to really become holy. The Apostle Peter writes of it this way. He said, add to your faith. In other words, take part in your salvation. Add to your faith. Well, Master Apostle, what shall I add? Add virtue. Add virtue to your faith. To virtue, add something. Add knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. In other words, continue day by day. Don't give up. Persevere. The Christian's one who perseveres. And when you begin to forget that you owe something to the Lord, remind yourself... And persevere and get back on the track again. And then add to perseverance godliness, which is holiness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. This building of your sanctification. You're taking part in it by the power of God in you. You're not doing it alone. I spent some effort a few weeks ago to talk about we're the only religion that comes with the motive power To meet the demand of our God. We don't do it on our own. We have God living in us to empower us to stand for Christ and to put away sin. In fact, as long as we see ourselves as in debt to our flesh, that is our own effort and our own goodwill, we show ourselves for who we really are. And that's what he's saying here. Our debt is to Christ, and so our every effort in this life should display that sentiment in us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You owe nothing to the flesh. That's obvious. What Paul is urging in us to see as just as obvious is that if, friends, if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death death, the deeds of the body. If you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. You should not be struggling with the same sin that you struggled with 20 years ago. What have you done for me lately, the Lord might ask. I've known Christians all my life who, I've known Christians who are Christians for 50 years and they talk how the Lord took away smoking when they were 25 and I'm like, what have you done for me lately? You know, you've got to build upon these things. Take part in our own sanctification. It's we who take part in prospering God's word within us. The statement implies effort on our part. If you live by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body. It implies effort on our part. If we put to death the deeds of the body, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us this new power to do so. But it's we who take part in prospering His word within us. We may allow here that though our justification required no effort on our part, that our sanctification, though it too is guaranteed in the process, it will happen. It does call for a joint effort on our part to make decisions befitting a saint of God. Friends, why were you saved? Why were you created? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul the Apostle says it a little differently. He said we're his workmanship and we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for good works. Now, I didn't put the next verse down in there. Perhaps I should have. I hope you would know it. The good works are already laid out for you that you should walk in them. That's what you can do when you know the end from the beginning and you're all powerful. You can lay the whole thing out and say, Now do it, even though you know by your power it will be done. We take part in it. James said it a little differently. He said, Someone will say to you, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith without your works. Friends, all of these wonderful things like faith, like love, right, justice, all of these wonderful concepts are invisible things until we see the works that they produce. Faith is nothing if it produces nothing. Faith is powerful. It's active. The verb pistis, meaning faith, is an active verb. It's used that way throughout the New Testament. Faith is at work. It's not asleep. So someone will say to you, if you have faith and I have works, but you have no works, who truly has the faith? And so we do it for Christ, but James implies something else here as well. We do it for a witness of Christ in us. What do you think he meant when he said, but someone will say, or someone might say, in other words, someone is watching you. Someone is evaluating you. They're evaluating your walk with God. They're seeing if your walk with God comports with all the things you say about God. You know, the walk and the talk thing. So someone will say implies that there are earthly observers of our works. And don't be surprised when earthly observers of our works tend to hold us to a stricter standard than we hold ourselves. Our sanctification ought to be a gift to the world. Friends, if we are a holy church, the holiest we can be, that is a gift to the world around us. That is a gift to our nation. If the churches will comport themselves in a Christian manner, Christianly, believing biblical doctrine, boldly proclaiming the gospel, if we will do all those things, we will be a gift to our society around us. We ought to become examples to follow. Our yes should be yes. Our no should be no. You have people in your lives, I'm sure, who will say they'll do something and you're really not sure if they'll come through because of a history of their yes not meaning yes. Am I right? We all know that certain people will say things or do things. You know, there's a, Parable Jesus has of the two sons, remember? And he came to the one son. He said, go out and work in my field. And the son said, no. But then he went and worked in the field. He repented, right? Even though he said no, he did what was asked. The other son said, yes, I'll happily work in the field. But he didn't go out. And Jesus said to the apostle, well, which one is justified before God? And they all knew, is the one who did something. Not just the one who said something. That's why Paul could write this to the Ephesians. Therefore... The imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no one deceive you with empty words on this account, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what's acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, and rather expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. That's the call to the church. Strip yourselves of all those old things. Notice covetousness is idolatry. It's not just sin in itself. It's an idolatry. The thing you covet has become your God. Those who are covetous are idolaters, he says in this. And covetousness is such an easy thing to fall into. I ask you to beware of it. Verse 13 goes further. But if you walk by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now you may remember some weeks ago, chapter 6, Paul put out that famous rhetorical question where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Remember that? And so what does the man ask? Paul anticipates, shall we sin then that grace may abound? He said, certainly not. Some of your versions say, God forbid, shall we sin that grace may abound. And what did he do? He gave us the question we should have asked. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's the rhetorical question that we should ask. If we really died to sin, remember the if. It's conditional. If you died to sin, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body. So if the deeds of the body are still taking precedence in your life, you ought to be uncertain as to whether or not you really have the Spirit of God and are saved. That's what he's saying here. Because it has to be visible at some point. Shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He goes on to develop the theme that we who claim to be alive to Christ died with Him. And our sin should have died also in us. We should have new impulses. We've been purchased, friends, with the blood of Christ. Our immortal souls have been paid for. Our slates are wiped clean. Our inner man has been freed. The old man has been crucified. And our whole being is empowered now. And not by effort, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Christianity, friends, is a morally demanding religion. It is a morally demanding religion, and it seems more and more so as society falls deeper and deeper into sin. Yeah, I remember you probably have some occasions when you were evangelizing and preaching and Bible-thumping with your friends and relatives who have no relationship to Christ, and they would say things like, I don't, want to, I don't want any part of your religion. It's a bunch of thou shalt not. You can't do this. You can't do that. Right? You know, I always thought it was strange. When I first came into the faith, I don't know, how many years was it now? Someone do the math. It was like 1988. Like what? Like what? 34 years or something like that. When I came into the faith, the preachers were all talking about smoking and drinking. You know, those were the great sins. No smoking, no drinking. Those were the things, right? Bible doesn't say one word about those things as, as being prohibited. But they were worldly things. And so we didn't do them. And while there was no smoking and no drinking, right, and no gambling and no card playing in the church... There was fornication and adultery and divorce. Our divorce rate matches that of the world. So we made up these minor things to be concerned with, but we, we just read a list. We just read a list of fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. Didn't say anything about smoking or drinking there. And I'm not giving everybody license to smoke and drink. I don't think you should. How's that? But I'm just saying, the church should be those who put away the things that God requires of us to put away. So we should have new impulses now that we've been purchased. Now that our souls have been paid for, our inner man, the old man, was crucified. We've been empowered by the Spirit of God. And we're a morally demanding religion, but we have a moral agent and power within us to live the Christian life that God demands. We're the only religion on earth that comes with the motive power to accomplish its demands. We're not left alone. We have the Holy Spirit. Friends, no other religion has the Holy Spirit helping them. You have to be, he reveals Christ. He doesn't reveal Allah or Gautama Buddha. He reveals Christ. We're the only religion in the world that has the Spirit of God living in us. That should mean something. It should mean something active and cleansing within us. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live because you will have shown and you will have proven that indeed you did receive Christ by faith. And so partaking of sinful deeds and lifestyles and choices is all the evidence we need to wipe away the privilege of assurance of our salvation. Put away those things and you may have assurance. Keep them. Keep wallowing in the sins of the youth. And there's no assurance with that. Friends, the deeds tell the tale. Our desires reveal us, if not to others, at least to ourselves. Maybe you didn't share your desires with other people, but you still have them. And so he says, do not be deceived God is not mocked, he said to the Galatians. For whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. In other words, what crop are you sowing? A sinful crop or a sanctified crop? For he who sows to the flesh, Paul wrote, will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sow seeds of sanctification. Sow seeds of repentance of self-examination, and do those things. And friends, we will be a holy church without spot or blemish, and we'll be a gift to the world in that time. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, We have before us what many will call a memory verse. I would almost bet that many people in here have committed that verse to memory. Through my whole evangelical life, people have said, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I'm led by the Spirit of God. I'm therefore a son of God. It's a memory verse, but like so many memory verses, maybe it should have been a memory passage or a memory paragraph. Because I think sometimes we go off half-cocked with a with half the view of what this verse is really telling us. What does the apostle refer to by the word led? Led by the Spirit of God. Now it's presumed by the vast majority of evangelicals in my experience that led means a particular sense of divine leading in our step-by-step, moment-by-moment walk with Christ. I think that's what most people say. They, have you ever had someone say to you, I know what you're telling me. I know you said it from the scriptures. But you see, I have this leading. And I have to trust that this leading is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever met someone who lives that way and talks that way, who ran their life shipwrecked by saying they were being led by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, by an inner voice perhaps? or an inner impression, or a feeling, or a disposition. Are these really reliable things? And is that what this verse means? Now let me say, and I have to say to Dwayne, Dwayne, throw the lever up back so that the seat restraints lower, so that no one can leave while I say these next few things. It's like the the roller coaster where the bar comes down, and you can't get away, you're up at the top, you don't want to get away. All right? Now, if we lose cabin pressure and the masks come down, All right. Make sure you put yours yours on before you put you know how you know the drill. No, but um, let me say this: that there is almost certainly an aspect of that teaching in the verse. This being led, I I will um I will say that there is an aspect of that being led in the day to day unction of the Holy Spirit. We do experience the leading of the Spirit in the particulars of our lives at times. I have said it. I have been led. I've been reliably led, and uh, so have many of you, and we've talked about those things. In the case of wisdom, for example, let me, let me give you an example. James wrote this, if any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what does that mean? You get on your knees, you ask God for wisdom, this lightning bolt strikes you, and you're wise like Solomon. Is that what it means? It actually didn't say how it comes, did it? It said it will come. Wisdom for the asking. What a great thing. Now, how does the wisdom come, do you just suppose? D- did a lightning bolt from heaven give you the wisdom? Are you suddenly zapped with clear minds and knowledge and historical and doctrinal understanding? Is it that way? Maybe it's a still, small voice in your head. Is that how the wisdom comes? A determined commitment to delve deep into the word of God. Oh, Father, I'll read the Bible every day. How about a point in a sermon? Maybe that's how the wisdom comes. People tell me all the time, that spoke to me. I didn't know it spoke to them in particular. Maybe it's a word from a brother or sister, or maybe it's all these things. But it says if you ask for wisdom, the Holy Spirit of God will give you that wisdom. If you're not double-minded about it, and you walk in faith, right? It goes on. However, it's the context of the passage that will not allow us to rest upon that simplistic conclusion. Are the seat restraints still firmly in place? Surely there may be something of that in this well-known verse, but that's not the apostle's main point of being spirit-led. Now, you can say the Spirit leads you in the day-to-day, but you should not be using that verse to say so and I'm going to show you why it doesn't in the it doesn't l- literally teach that he's speaking of another thing entirely here and I'll show that the context demonstrates the fact but before I do that I do want to pay homage to the popular view that the saints have complete and unfettered access to the spirit's leading in the particulars of life can we really rely on the inner voice when we're at a crossroads or a decision When we refuse counsel and appeal to our own feelings and dispositions as though those can be trusted in every case to be the indubitable prompting of the Spirit of God. Can these voices, friends, these feelings, these dispositions, can they really be trusted? Or are they too subjective and controlled by your secret inner desires? And how will you know if it's not your own prompting or the Spirit's prompting? Now, that verse certainly doesn't tell us all those things, does it? But the Bible does give us some examples. Let's look at some. Our first example is from Acts 13. We read the account of a council held at the church at Antioch. Do you remember this? Antioch in Syria. There's a few Antiochs around the world, and that's because a great conqueror named Antiochus went around naming cities after himself. So this is Antioch in Syria. There are a group of men, including Saul and Barnabas. You know them. Saul is Paul. Barnabas, his friend and cohort, right? And then there's this man, Simeon, called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Menonion, it says. He was brought up by Herod the Tetrarch. That, they don't explain that. They just say it. So there's these group of men who apparently the early readers of Acts may, might have known them. And so the passage reads, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit said something to that group. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So the Holy Spirit came and actually, in a particular way, chose people to serve him and told them where to go. Very powerful. What it doesn't tell us is how the Spirit did that. The second example, the so-called Jerusalem Council, this is when James, the Lord's brother, who was one of the great elders of the Jerusalem church, really the first church of the disciples, right there in Jerusalem, and James was the pastor of the church, and they got together because they had to decide what things they were going to do because Jews couldn't do all these things, and Gentiles could, but now they're all lumped in together for the first time, and so they had this council, and we read this about the council. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, So there's a whole gathering of people here to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas. They were leading men among the brethren. So the church makes this decision. They're going to send certain men. And so these men agreed upon the binding practices for Jews and Gentiles in the infant church. The requirement of circumcision was rescinded. And then we read this. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these necessary things. The Holy Spirit communicated to that council, and the whole church was there. And so among the very first articles of the church that are binding upon all were sanctioned by the Holy Spirit, who made his will known to the saints who attended. It's very plain, right? they came up with some very specific requirements. You may have heard this. Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. So the church and the Holy Spirit in conjunction said those things were good. But we don't really know how the Holy Spirit told them that. It it doesn't say that he spoke in words. It doesn't say that he infused their minds with knowledge, so we're kind of left not knowing how that operation worked. But we have God's word on it that it did. Acts 16, when Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in Asia. Sometimes the Holy Spirit stops us from preaching. But Luke, who wrote these verses and all these examples, claims that the Holy Spirit led these people in a very particular way. So indeed, that is his ministry. He has done that in the past. So in this instance, or these instances rather, we see the Holy Spirit speak in very specific ways. But I would press a number of things here as we look into these. The first would be that we're not told how or in what way the Holy Spirit communicated with these men. It could have been a mutual impression upon their souls, something silent, something inward. Was it in audible words? We don't know. The first seems to be more likely than the second. I think if it said he spoke, I think they would have pressed that. So that's number one. A second consideration, which I think is more important, and that is that each of these momentous occasions of spirit-led deliberations, the saints were in a group. Did you notice that? There was always a group of people at the time. And they were the important people in the church at the time. There's no mention here of personal leading of any single person of the company. In other words, no one came into the church meeting and said, the Holy Spirit said this to me, and this is the course we must take. That didn't happen. Not in these examples. They were together. They were praying. And friends, I'm going to get to it. They were fasting. So was it a mutual Impression? Was it audible words? We don't know. We do know they were in a group, though, and that no single person was privy to what the Holy Spirit said, and they all had to listen to Him, not in these cases, all right? A third consideration is that the Holy Spirit spoke in these instances on matters of church wide importance, not on little particulars of life, right? He didn't tell someone what job to take, right? or what time to go to bed tonight he told them about things that the whole church church wide as the church was being formed by god with the holy spirit in presence of the people in a palpable way he was telling them how the church will proceed for all eternity these were big momentous things that the holy spirit got involved with so that's a third consideration A fourth consideration, my last consideration, is the implication of long-term commitment. Think about this. In the first instance, in the Antioch church, their proceedings end with this statement. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, you can't fast in the moment, can you? If you can, then I would say we're all fasting right now because nobody's eating. Are we fasting? No, we probably had breakfast except for the intermittent fasters. But we probably had had breakfast, right? I had two eggs over easy on one piece of toast um, and a couple cups of coffee. All right, so I don't think it's right for me to say I'm fasting until noon. So fasting in the scriptures refers to some kind of a commitment, doesn't it? Could it mean a day? It could mean several days. Um, Elijah fasted for something like 40 days, right? So... There's an implication of long-term commitment. In other words, the people went in the room to decide something before God in a momentous occasion in church history on important matters for the whole church, and the Holy Spirit got involved with it. The implication is of a prayer meeting lasting days or even longer. These people weren't in a rush. They didn't do one of those prayers prayers where they say, Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this nice day. Uh, We just want you to lead us in the momentous occasions of the church today. And we know that the first impression that comes to our mind we will take is your word and we'll leave. They didn't do one of those prayers. They were there. They were praying. They were preaching. They were conferring with one another. And they were fasting. A fast is a commitment over a period of time. They did not just pray and feel. Their feeling was not the proof of their being led. They prayed for days without food and were committed to hearing. And so they heard and their testimony was according to law. It was the testimony of two or three or more witnesses of the same thing. It was therefore justified. So indeed, the Spirit of God does speak, or at least did speak, in those instances. Now I think it's a moment for my most simplistic Bible lesson concerning how to read a passage of Scripture. I have a very simple Bible lesson. You may have heard it before, but if not, think about this. As I, as I present how we should approach a passage of Scripture. There are largely two types of Scripture, two classes of Scripture. There's descriptive and there's prescriptive. Now, if you know what the words mean, you know that descriptive is God is telling us something that happened in the past. It isn't something you should necessarily do, right? But prescriptive is like a prescription, Like you go to the doctor, he gives a prescription, you must do this, right? Or he's telling you to do something. So there's different types. It's our duty to uncover for ourselves just which type of passage we're reading. Now, some are real obvious. Noah was told to build an ark, prescriptive or descriptive. It's descriptive. He didn't tell you to build an ark. He didn't really tell Tony Danza or Steve Carell to build an ark. Right? Who else? John Voight, um, Russell Crowe, they were all told to build arcs, but we weren't. I'm talking about the men that starred in different movies about Noah. Um, So God told Noah to build an ark. That's descriptive. He's just telling us something that happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's descriptive. He's not saying, go out and create the heavens and the earth. That would be absurd, right? So some, some passages are descriptive and some are prescriptive by their nature. Um, Abraham was told to have several animals and to walk in their blood. It's descriptive. He didn't tell us to do that. I haven't done that. On the other hand, Paul wrote, do all things without complaining and disputing. That's prescriptive. He's telling all the saints to do all things without complaining and disputing. He's not saying some of the saints do that, but don't worry about it. That's obviously prescriptive, Right? and then you'll become blameless and harmless children of God. He said to Timothy, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake in your frequent infirmities. It's actually a medicinal prescription he's giving Timothy. He's telling him to do this. Water was untrustworthy, wine a little more so. Such verses are prescriptive. He's telling a man to do something. They speak in of things that the apostle is advising that any saint could, and in some cases should do. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. That's clearly prescriptive, right? Jesus gave prescriptions regarding the Spirit's leading. He said, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, He'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is present in the church in all times. The question is, how does he tell us in our time? How does he give us leading in our time? The Spirit of God will only speak when he's directed by the Father and the Son. He he says he doesn't do things of his own authority. What my father or me declares to him, he'll declare to you, right? He doesn't do things of his own authority. He always glorifies Christ. Any leading the Holy Spirit gives you, you will know if it's his leading if it glorifies Christ. If it doesn't glorify Christ, it's not him. He doesn't do that. It's not his ministry. So if your leading doesn't do that, it's not his leading. If your leading adds to the written word already revealed then it's not his leading, because the canon is closed. And he who adds to the prophecies of this book, I will add to him the curses written herein. Right? We don't add to the Word of God. uh, Now, to what extent he leads in the particulars of life, in the moment-by-moment directing of the trivial details of our walk with God, none of us can say, and Paul doesn't say, But so far as this verse is concerned, the Holy Spirit is teaching on an entirely different point. I will grant you the Holy Spirit speaks. And the Holy Spirit speaks on great important matters. And the Holy Spirit speaks to the body of Christ, who are committed to stay long enough to listen. Right? But it's in the context that the specific subject of the leading of the Spirit is revealed. Friends, verse 14 begins with the word for. Now when you see the word for, because God... uh, communicates to us in language, we have to use the rules of language to understand what he's saying. When he uses the word for, he might have used the word therefore. He might have used the word because. Now, when you see one of those words, those are a conjunction. They join two thoughts or two sentences. Do you follow me? So when a verse begins with the word for... The meaning of that verse cannot be contained in that verse. It has to be contained in the previous verse. you see the logic of that? He could have said, because. He could have said, because as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He could have said that. But he used the word for, which is fine. That's the the translation we have from the Greek. In other words, when a sentence begins with four, the answer to the particular meaning of the sentence is found in the previous statement. So let's look at the previous statement. And then we'll know what verse 14 is telling us. If you live by the Spirit, by putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Friends, the passage is clear when it's taken as a whole. Those who are led by the Spirit are those who are consciously seeking to put to death the deeds of the body. That is the specific use of being Spirit-led in this particular verse. It's these and these alone. These people who are putting away the deeds of the body and these alone who may be said to be Spirit-led and the others may not. But he's speaking about that one function, putting away the deeds of the body. He's not talking about receiving prophecies for the future. He's not talking about being led in the particulars of the moment or the day. I know we would love for that to mean that, and there are other places I've shown you where we can take that, but this verse does not mean that. It means that if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're led by the Spirit of God to put away the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means. The two verses must be taken as one. Because the word for determines that for us. If you're led in some other way, if it's your opinion that you're being led not to put to death certain sinful bodily things, then you're not being led by the Spirit of God and may be assured that you're not a son of God. Or maybe you think that maybe you're an exception. And so Paul does not speak, at least not here. I'm not saying there's no other talk. I've given you the examples of being spirit-led. But here he's talking about one function. Those who are sanctified before God put away the things of the flesh. If they do that, they will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God to do those things are the sons of God. And so we may condense the two verses into one, which says, if you live by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And those who are led in this way may have assurance that they are the children of God. Those who do not put away sinful deeds are not gods. They belong not to God. I included a verse from 1 John here. John wrote, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He who keeps his commandments is spirit-led in the Romans 8.14 sense. Insofar as spirit-led in the popular sense is concerned, Martin Lloyd-Jones had something to say on the subject. He said some of the greatest tragedies in the history of the church have resulted from the actions of fanatical persons who were quite certain that they were being led by the Holy Spirit to do this or that. Oftentimes their actions were diametrically opposed to the plain teaching of Scripture. You see, being led by the Spirit will never oppose the clear teaching of the Spirit, of the the Word of God. It will never oppose that. There won't be some new exception for your life. And if you hear that, you're being deceived into thinking that that's a Spirit leading. And it's not. So Lloyd-Jones goes on. He said, "...they felt that they were being led and guided by the Spirit." And then he says, but feeling is too subjective a test, and therefore I cannot believe that the apostle has it in his mind as a practical test which we can apply to ourselves, for it exposes us to the vagaries of subjectivism. Friends, I have had people all my life in my ministry who told me that they're being led in a way that I always knew they wanted to go anyway, and I knew for them They were not being led by the Holy Spirit. They were deceived into thinking that their inner voice and impulses was the Holy Spirit. It was not in comportment with Scripture. It was against the counsel of the body of Christ and other people. You see it all the time. You probably know people who said they were Spirit-led to do something, and it destroyed their walk with God. I know several, if not many. I must say, I've seen so many lives run aground, shipwrecked by clinging to an arrogant presumption that they were moved by the Spirit of God, and therefore they were immune to any counsel from the brethren. The Spirit of God does not tell you not to counsel with the brethren. Just as Jesus is the agent of our salvation, so the preaching of the gospel is the means of our salvation. Jesus saves us, but he uses preaching to do it, right? So he, he's the agent, and he has a means. The Holy Spirit is the agent of our sanctification. The written word and the counsel of gifted brethren Other means of our sanctification. I've often said, don't try to be a Christian without the church. To take one apart from the other is to turn away the gift of God. Friends, the church, the gifts of the Spirit are called gifts because they're in the church, and they're for your benefit. In all of these means, here in the church, friends, the council, right? The word of God unfolded and taught by the gifted people of the church. I always tell you, don't try to live for God without the church. The church is the gift of God, and the spirit is most active and most vocal in the midst of a loving congregation. And he put all things under his feet, we read. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to direct our thoughts to the understanding of this, the written word of God, and unravel for us its deep meaning for us this morning. Father, let us seek the leading of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives, but let us seek it through the means by which God has provided for us in the church and not apart from those means. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.